chapter 4 and verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. He'd been speaking about the state that the uh, heathen, the pagan Ephesians were. And he said, you, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. But among you there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Tonight I want to speak about the subject of do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, as you think of the words, those few words pack a tremendous amount of theology into them. You think, first of all, you take the word grieve. What does that tell us? You can only grieve, you can grieve only someone who loves you. You can't grieve your, an enemy. You can make him mad, but you can't grieve him. Grieve is a love word. Therefore, when Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, he is saying that the Holy Spirit has sensitivity and you can grieve him because he loves you. And the Bible speaks about the love of the Spirit. And Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. So first of all, it tells us of his personality and of his love. He is a person. Uh, you can't grieve an influence but you can grieve a person. Then it asserts his deity, because it says the Holy Spirit of God. 
The Holy Spirit is not an emanation from God. He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity, equal with the Father and with the Son, equally to be worshipped, to be loved, to be adored. And also he can be known just as we can know Christ as Savior and God as our Father. We can know the Holy Spirit as the comforter, the strengthener. All the attributes that are spoken of, both of Christ and of God the Father, are applied to the Holy Spirit. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is unchanging, and so on. All the attributes that are attributed to the Father and the Son are attributed to the Holy Spirit. He is the eternal Spirit, it speaks of in, in Hebrews. He is the eternal Spirit. He has eternity as well as the other attributes. And then a third thing those few words uh, tell us is tell us of His holiness. He is the Holy Spirit. Holy is a word that has been debased in current usage. Oh, he's a holy Joe. <laughs> Isn't it strange how the devil takes the key words and debases them? Why is most of the swear words have some reference to God or to the cross or something else? Why is it? Because he's trying to debase all Christian terms. And the term holy is, and holiness are not very popular. Oh, he belongs to the holiness people. I've heard that said often. Do we not want to be holy? Is there anything wrong with holiness? God says, follow after holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. He said, be ye holy, for I am holy. And so the Holy Spirit is a holy spirit, and therefore anything that is unholy grieves him. Then, in addition to that, it argues not only his personality, not only his deity, not only his holiness, but it argues his love. And the measure of a person's grief is the measure of their love. If you don't love a person, you don't grieve much about them when they die. And who feels it most when somebody dies? Those who love them most. And so here, the Holy Spirit is one who loves us just as much as the, the Lord who died on the cross and the Father who gave His Son. He is the lover of Christ. And the Holy Spirit, as the lover of Christ, will do everything he can to make Christ preeminent in our hearts and lives. Before our Lord died, he, he said, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. He will take of the things that are mine and will reveal them unto you. And anything we know spiritually about Christ has come through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. So we are to be very grateful to him for that reason. Now, it's on, on the basis of these things that we've seen in the Holy Spirit that Paul appeals to us for abstinence from grieving the Holy Spirit. He says, see that you don't by your lifestyle or by your actions or by your thinking, see that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit who loves you so deeply. Why should I not grieve the Holy Spirit? Out of consideration for Him. Do you like being grieved? Who, who likes being grieved? Parents, when their children go wrong, how grieved their hearts are. And uh, Paul is saying, now don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, be obedient. Be obedient to his promptings. 
acknowledge him. So out of consideration for him, I should not grieve him. And then, because he is who he is. Now, if I were to come up to one of you fellas and just give you a smack on the face, uh, I'm not going to do it, but uh, (laughs) if I did, well, that would be no big deal, would it? (laughs) But supposing I went up to President Bush and gave him a smack on the face. Well, he's just a man. What's the difference? The difference of the dignity of his position. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of God. And because he is who he is, I should not grieve him. I don't want to make him sad. Then I shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit out of consideration for myself. Because whenever I grieve the Holy Spirit, I am preventing him from exercising his gracious, beneficent ministry in my life. And so, if from purely selfish motives, I shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit because I'm depriving myself of the very things that I need in my spiritual life. So out of consideration for myself, I shouldn't do it. And then, out of consideration for lost souls round about, I shouldn't do it, because if I grieve him, his power cannot flow through me as he longs to, and my service is short-circuited, the power is short-circuited, and those who might have known the gospel through me don't have the opportunity of hearing it. And so, there are three reasons why I should not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, what is it that grieves him? If you read the context, if you noticed the context uh, in which we read it, which we read, you'll see that there are many things that grieve him. But there are two or three that are important. Uh, The others are, but these are especially important. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by ignoring his indwelling. I said this morning that there is no Christian in whose life the Holy Spirit is not dwelling. How much did you think of the Holy Spirit last week? Did you ignore his indwelling? How much did you depend on... I'm preaching to myself too. I'm not preaching to you only. They say a good preacher should have one finger pointing to the congregation and one finger pointing to himself. So when I'm saying these things, I'm addressing my own self. How much do we depend upon the Holy Spirit? When you prayed, did you pray in the Spirit? The Bible says, praying always in the Spirit. Did you depend upon the Holy Spirit when you prayed? Isn't it easy for us just to get get ahead and do it ourselves without any reference to Him? And yet He's the Spirit of prayer and of supplication. So we can ignore His indwelling and just live as though there were no Holy Spirit. I know some people get unduly obsessed with the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about that. But do we recognize His indwelling? Do we, are we grateful for all He does in our hearts and lives? You see, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And What can you do to a temple? You can desecrate it. And we can desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit, our lives, by allowing impure thoughts, impure actions, by saying bitter words or untrue words and so on. All these things grieve the Holy Spirit. So we can desecrate the temple 
in which the Holy Spirit dwells. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we distrust his word, distrust his promises. Uh, Do we really believe that every promise of the scripture is to be relied on? That's a big order because somebody who had a lot of spare time counted up and he counted 30,000 promises in the Bible. If God made those promises, every one of those promises will come true. And the Spirit of God who inspired the Scriptures is grieved when we doubt the promises of God and when we distrust the Scripture. Livingston, David Livingston, the great missionary, said that God is a gentleman and he would not deny his word. And so that is true. God will not go back on his word and we can trust him. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by infringing his commands. You see, he is Christ's representative on earth. The Lord sent him as his representative and he is representing the interests of Christ. And whenever I disobey the command of Christ, the Holy Spirit is grieved. So there are three very general ways in which we can grieve the Spirit by ignoring his indwelling, by distrusting the word of Scripture, and by infringing our Lord's commands. But uh, when you go through this, this passage you'll find that there are three categories into which the things that grieve the Spirit fall. One is unbecoming speech. Another is undisciplined emotions. And a third one is unmastered instincts. And these things grieve the Spirit. Uh, In 1966, during the Vietnamese War, I was invited to a conference in Vietnam. Uh, It was the Christian Missionary Alliance uh, called all the Protestant pastors to a conference. Uh, And uh, about 350 came. uh, We had to fly in because all the roads were in the the Viet Cong held all the roads. And so there were 40 male CNMA missionaries and 350 Vietnamese. And they were groups of 11 languages. We had to minister to people of 11 tongues. And the whole conference was carried on with four, four people speaking. I would speak in English. It would be interpreted into Vietnamese. And then a group of tribal people over there who knew one common language, it would be interpreted into their language. And another group here who had one common language would be there. And so everything went round four times. And you you would say, well, that's a, a hindrance to communication, surely. But you know... they might just as well all have been speaking English from the way in which the Holy Spirit spoke to them. After the first message, and there was no build-up of any kind. We sang a hymn or or a couple of hymns or something, and the Vietnamese pastor in, in charge, he prayed and made some announcements. I gave a message. And then he threw it open for prayer. And the whole place just burst into prayer. And it just sounded like hail coming down on the roof. That that kind of thing you get in China, but you don't, it's not characteristic of Vietnam. But the, the whole place just burst out into prayer. And here and there dotted over the room would be a man 
on his knees, pouring out his heart to God and the tears flowing and the water on the floor. And that went on for quite a good while until the chairman closed the meeting. And do you know that every meeting after that, it was the prayers were broken prayers. God came right into our midst. The only way you could describe it was that the Holy Spirit came on the gatherings. And on the Wednesday night, I spoke on this subject, on grieving the Holy Spirit. And I spoke on what does grieve the Holy Spirit. And at the close, when I'd finished, the chairman very quietly and with no pressure, he just said, if God has spoken to you tonight and has pointed out to you things in your life that have been grieving the Spirit and hindering your ministry, and in your heart you purpose to put it right, would you please rise? There was not one person, missionary or national pastor, who kept their seat. They all rose. And then there was a scene that uh, I'll never forget. Pastor going to pastor, making confession or trying to put right something that was wrong and missionary going to missionary and missionary going to pastor. And that continued for hours until things had been put right between them. And when we met the next day, it was a different group of men. They came in great need because America does, Americans don't usually realize that the Vietnamese War had been going on for 15 years before America joined in. And these men had been carrying on their ministry in war conditions and a number had been killed in, in, the, in the fighting. And they came there in great need but they met with God, or at least most of them did. And at the close of the gathering, one of the senior CNMA men, a veteran, he said, God has done more in one week than we could have done in three years. And it's very interesting. When that conference began, the number of Christians in Vietnam was 40,000. At the end of three years, it was 80,000. It doubled in three years. There were 10,000 in one area turned to the Lord. And what happened? Those men in whose lives the Holy Spirit had been grieved, their ministry had been ineffective. And letters would come saying, our pastor is preaching with a new power. And the, here, the movement of the Spirit spread out and right through, and even although the war was escalating, the church grew rapidly. Well, those men put right what the Spirit of God showed them had been grieving him, and God came in in blessing. And it will be the same. Now, the first category of things that grieve the Spirit. Look at verse 29, verse 25, uh, rather, uh, of uh, Ephesians 4. Therefore, each of you must put off all falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. All falsehood, all lying, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all detraction, all these things have to be put off. Verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. That's negative. But only that which is helpful for building up others. See, it's very easy for our talking to be negative and unproductive. Uh, we're, we're to give an account of every idle word that proceeds from our mouth. Well, I think that, 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 uh, that frightens people. 
But what, does, what is an idle word? What is an idle man? A man who's not working. So what the Lord is saying is, don't let any words proceed out of your mouth that aren't doing something. Positively, let, let our speech be something that will contribute something. That doesn't mean you're not to have jokes and so on and not to talk about ordinary things. Of course, that, that's, that's legitimate. But uh, don't let, let our speech be such that uh, it's not achieving anything at all or and, and maybe working in the wrong direction. In chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, which are out of place. It doesn't say making jokes, but it says coarse jesting. And do you know how coarse jesting can be? And how easily we can come just to the edge of something that is questionable. Well, as Christians, when we do that kind of thing, the Holy Spirit is grieved. And so we're to put away all these things. But rather, instead of that, let our mouths be filled with thanksgiving. This morning we saw that one of the fruits of being filled with the Spirit is always giving thanks for all things. And so if instead of saying, using our speech to uh, grieve the Holy Spirit, if we have a thankful hearts and our speech is thanksgiving, it will build up the church. Then undisciplined emotions. Anger without sin. Our Lord was never angry once on his own behalf. He was angry, but he did not sin. You see, anger that centers on ourselves can be sinful. But our Lord's anger was always on behalf of others. He was angry at injustice. He was angry at sin. You know, the wrath of God doesn't mean that God loses his temper. It means that with us. But what, what does the wrath of God mean? It means God's settled hostility against sin. He knows sin for what it is. He sees what sin has done to his universe. And he has a settled hostility against sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. But that doesn't mean that he, he, he loses his temper and gets angry and then vents it on us. When God described himself to Moses, he said, I am a God who is slow to anger. He he is long-suffering and slow to anger. But it's possible for us to be angry without sinning when we are angry on behalf of others. We see widows being exploited by con men. Why? If you don't get angry at that kind of thing, you're neutral. Why? No, we, we should get angry. But when... My anger is because I've been hurt or I've been offended. That's a different matter. And uh, how often, even in a family, there's anger and wrath and people are calling, out, calling each other names and so on. That's not sinless anger. That's sinful anger. And uh, verse 31 says, Get rid of all rage and anger. Or to get rid of it. Not uh, tolerate it, but uh, we're to get rid of all malice. Malice is anger cooled down to hatred. Malice. He committed that crime with malice of forethought, you, the courts say. Anger cooled down to hatred. And uh, rage is anger with the lid off. You know, there are some people who, uh, you know, they build up 
and uh, you could see happening and you see them getting more and more out of control and then there's an explosion, that's rage. And we are to get rid of all these things. They have no part in the Christian life. You say, well, I've got a temper that I've tried to control and I can't control it. You remember Francis Ridley Havergal, who wrote, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace. You would never think that she had a temper, would you? But her sister, and sisters know quite a bit about their sisters, uh, her sister said that uh, she had one of those explosive tempers, which every now and again it would build up and then it would explode. And she said, one day there had been a specially bad explosion and her sister really lost her temper. And she was, afterwards she was terribly cut up about it and she went into her room, flung herself down by her bed and wept before the Lord and said, Lord, is it ever to be thus? Am I going to go on losing my temper and coming and confessing to you and then going and losing it again? And the Lord injected into her mind a very unusual text. And when I say it, you'll find it very difficult to connect it with a bad temper. The text that the Lord injected into her mind was, the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will see no more forever. Well, whatever has that got to do with a bad temper? But when she was on her knees, she thought, now when were those spoken? To whom was that spoken? And when she got it in place, she remembered that it was spoken when Israel had come out of Egypt, had crossed the Red Sea, and they were being pursued by Pharaoh and his armies who was wanting to come and take them back into bondage again. And she said, Oh Lord, are you telling me that the Egyptians, my bad temper, whom I have seen today, I will see no more forever? And she said, it's just as though the Lord said, no more forever. And her sister said, from that day on, my sister never lost her temper. She said the whole tone of her poetry changed. For example, she said, one poem, I never thought it could be thus month after month to know the river of thy peace without a ripple in its flow. And she wrote that wonderful hymn, Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace. Now, has God got favorites? Was she his favorite? Would he not be willing to do for us what he did for her? if we believe that God is supernatural, why is it we don't trust him to do something with our sins? The things that get us down and the things that grieve the Spirit. You'll notice that in this passage, uh, where it speaks about be angry and sin not, even with righteous anger. It says, don't, don't let it go. Let, don't let the sun go down. Don't carry it over to the next day or it might degenerate into sinful anger. So don't nurse anger of any kind, whether it's the rage or malice or just anger. Put it away. And then the third category, unmastered instincts. Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. That's fairly clear, isn't it? That's chapter 5 and verse 3. You see, he is the spirit of holiness. And when we engage and indulge in this type of thing, we are 
grieving the Spirit. Sex is a gift of God, and therefore it's not unholy, but it can easily become unholy if we entertain it in ways in which God has said we are not to entertain it. And then he speaks about greed. Greed. Uh, Not merely food, but greed to get things, to amass things, to amass a fortune and so on. And uh, you, you students, what is your objective for the future? Are you going to pour your whole life into getting money? Or are you going to invest your life in something that will produce eternal dividends? In speaking to younger people, I sometimes say, well, you know, gold is not currency in heaven. It's all right here on your gold standard, but it's not currency in heaven. In fact, point of fact, Gold is so little valued in heaven that all they can use it for is paving roads. <laughs> the streets are paved with gold. So that, 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 I, I believe that God has put that in there to let us see that his standards are quite different. We're on the gold standard, but he's not. And we could work for all our lives and get a good uh, a pile of money saved up. But... Uh, What have you sent on ahead? No credit in heaven, but for that which is given to God from pure motives, because we love him. The motive with which we give is important. So put away all greed of every kind. Have done with it. Covetousness which is idolatry. That's what it says in Colossians 3 and 5. Covetousness is idolatry because the things we covet become idols. And an idol is something which takes the place God should have. That's what an idol is. And things so easily become idols. A woman can make her home her idol. A man can make his wife an idol, and so on. An idol is anything which takes the place that God should have, and covetousness is idolatry. Then in verse 28, dishonesty of every kind is to be put away, because it grieves the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of holiness, and uh, dishonesty is not holiness. It says, he who has, verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no more. He must be honest and work for, with his hands and, and earn. We can steal in many ways. We can steal by not giving our employer full-time value for his money. We can do it when we get scholarships by not giving those who award the scholarships the best that we can do in our studies. Or the parents who have sacrificed to put us through and we don't put our best into it. We, we are getting perilously near this type of thing. When we evade taxes, you have all kinds of people who set up business to show you how you can dodge taxes. Well, we can dodge the, the in, internal revenue man, but you can't dodge God. And let him that stole steal no more. I was having a conference in uh, California good many years ago, And the man came up to me after my first meeting and he said, "Uh, I hear you come from New Zealand. I said, yes. He said, oh, I I lived in New Zealand many years ago. He said, I left there nearly 50 years ago. I said, where did you live? He said, oh, I lived in Dunedin. I said, oh, I lived there for a while. And so we chatted. And he said, you wouldn't happen to remember a lawyer named John Wilkinson, would you? I said, remember him. I used to work with him. He said, no. He could hardly believe that he was somebody 
who 50 years ago worked with a man he knew in New Zealand. So, but we, uh, that was all. But at the end of the conference, he came up to me and he said, John Wilkinson had a son, didn't he? I said, yes, he did. Is he alive? I said, no, I'm, he's dead. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. Something in the way he said, I said, why are you sorry? And he hesitated for a moment, and then he said, well, when I left Dunedin, I left owing John Wilkinson a sum of money which I've never paid. He said, and God has been speaking to me about that during this conference. And he said, I thought that if his son was alive, I could make restitution to him. But he said, I suppose if he's dead, there's nothing I can do about it. I said, oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I said, if I were in your place, I would work out what would be a fair thing to restore, and I would give it to some branch of God's work, and then the Lord would know that you were putting right something that was wrong, and it's been on your conscience for 50 years. Well, that was that. But I was back there four years afterwards, and so was he. So he came up to me, he said, do you remember me? I said, yes, remember you. Remember what we talked about? Yes. He said, I did what you said. He said, I gave the money to the OMF. I said, you couldn't have done better than that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, you know, it was so wonderful to have that sin off my conscience that I said, I must do something to show my gratitude to God. So he said, I started a prayer group in my home for the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and it's still going on. Now, why am I telling that story? For this reason. There was one chance in 230 million, there are 230 million people in America then, there was one chance in 230 million people that there would at that moment be one person who happened to know a lawyer named John Wilkinson on the other side of the world 50 years ago. And God was so interested in that old man getting right with him that he arranged for us to meet one chance in 230 million. Is the Lord interested in individual people? Is he interested in getting sins off consciences? Now, I know what I'm talking about. I've had to do some of the things I'm talking about. And I know how real and how costly and how traumatic it can be. But I know also know how important it is that if the Spirit of God convicts us of something, of an apology we should make, of a letter we should write, or something we should restore, well, if we're going to be wise, we will, for his sake, uh, we'll put it right. And then, what happens? What do we do when we grieve the Holy Spirit? David prayed in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. But we don't need to worry about that because Jesus said in John 14, 16, he will be with you forever. So the Holy Spirit, when he takes up his abode, makes our body his temple, he's there to stay. We needn't fear that a him, one of the old hymns used to say, oh, may we never, never grieve the Holy Ghost away. Well, we can't grieve him away, but we can make him ineffective. May I illustrate it this way? It's a beautiful sunny day, and the sun is streaming in the window, and I'm enjoying the rays of the sun. And then... I pull down the blind. The sun hasn't stopped shining. It's shining all right. It's doing its part. But it can't get through to me because I've pulled down the blind. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit, it's just as though we pull down the blind. He's still there. He's still waiting 
there to shine his rays into our hearts and lives. He's still there waiting to be uh, to minister to us and minister through us, but we have put a, between us a, a veil, and he is unable to do what he longs to do. Well, what are we to do? If I want to enjoy the sun again, what I'll do? I'll pull up the blind. What are we to do if we've grieved the Holy Spirit? You say, well, how do I know whether I have grieved the Holy Spirit or not? But that's not too difficult to find out. When we have grieved the Holy Spirit, there are certain symptoms. Uh, one of the symptoms is that the Bible loses its attraction. And our Bible reading becomes formal. And we don't enjoy it. We don't get much out of it. The Bible seems becomes dead to us instead of living and vibrant. Prayer becomes reluctant and formal. It's not vital. We're not conscious of making contact with God. Victory over sin becomes uh, rather a memory than a present experience because the Holy Spirit has been grieved. Well, what am I to do? Pull up the blind. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, it says, cleanse, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, it says, cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. There are two cleansings. But I don't hear this one spoken of much. There's one cleansing which only God can do, and there's one cleansing which only I can do. And here it's saying, cleanse yourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. The flesh, of course, is the external, and the spirit is internal. Uh, we place a great deal of emphasis upon the sins of the flesh and we think of those, those are the terrible things. Right? They have the, the worst social consequences, but the sins of the Spirit in God's sight are equally abhorrent. And so he says, no, not only cleanse yourself from the f sins of the flesh, but from the sins of the Spirit. And how do you do it? By an act of your will, you separate yourself from them. You put off, just like putting off an old, an old coat. You put off the old self and put on the new self. We read together in that passage in Corinthians. And there, there is something that we can do. By an act of our will, we can say, I have done with that sin. That's not going to have victory over me. I have been crucified with Christ. I reckon myself dead indeed unto that sin, but alive unto God. And then when we take that ground, we experience victory because the Holy Spirit is able to work in our lives in that way. Cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. So that's the first thing. And then the next thing to do is to confess your sin. If we confess our sin, it doesn't matter what the sin is. If we confess our sin, that's our part. The initiative is with us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful passage that is. I'll never forget when that passage became a living thing to me, and when I came with my sin and confessed it, and then accepted the cleansing that the Lord gave, and I went away feeling clean again. What a wonderful verse it is. Uh, you've got to come believing, of course, if you've got to believe the promise, if it's to become actual, he's faithful. He keep his word. He will forgive our sins. And we used to sing a jingle when I was young. 
I'll give you a piece of good news today. My sins are remembered no more, for Jesus has taken them all away. My sins are remembered no more. And the chorus went, no more, no more, no more, no more. My sins are remembered no more, for Jesus has taken them all away. My sins are remembered no more. Very simple words, but boys, what depth of meaning. Because it's the memory of past sin that Satan likes to hurl up into our faces, isn't it? The basis of the new covenant is what? Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more forever. So why should we keep on remembering what God says he's forgotten? That's what the devil delights to do. He, he brings it up and pushes our noses into it. And God says, well, I've forgotten it. You can, if you get any blessing out of it, you keep on remembering it. <laughs> well, that, don't, don't we do that? Then the third thing, what is the third thing? First of all, we separate ourselves from those things that grieve the Holy Spirit by an act of the will. Then we confess the sin of them and accept the cleansing which comes through the blood of Christ. See, the first one is our cleansing. We separate ourselves because that's the, what the word means there. And then the second cleansing is the cleansing that God gives by the blood of the Lamb. And the third thing is to submit afresh to the Lordship of Christ and once again turn your life over to the control of the Holy Spirit. And the wonderful thing is that he'll take us up again. He doesn't turn us off. He doesn't throw us on the scrap heap. God, our God, is a God who delights to give us a new opportunity and to start afresh with a clean sheet. How wonderful. Well, there is what I believe this scripture teaches about grieving the Spirit? Do you want to be used by the Lord? Well, put right anything the Holy Spirit shows you to be wrong and then take the steps that I've suggested, which I believe are the scriptural way to get back to the place where you are rightly related to the Holy Spirit and are not grieving Him.